Number two, different desktop environments to suit a variety of user needs. Unlike Windows or Mac OS, there are different desktop environments to choose from that is easily configurable for the end user. Some of the more popular desktop environments are GNOME, KDE Plasma, XFCE, and Cinnamon. Users can also have more than one desktop environment installed and switch between them at any time. Although Windows 10 and Mac OS offer a consistent user environment, it also lacks any real revolutionary changes. Users are greeted with the same interface day in and day out. Examples of lackluster trivial changes include the flattening of the minimize, maximize, and close buttons. Although there are small changes and tweaks, the core of macOS has essentially remained the same to this day. Some may say that the touch bar on macOS is an example of recent innovation, but this is a weak attempt to compete with Microsoft's touchscreen interface. Both are a mix of hardware and software, but in this video we're going to stay focused on primarily software changes. Number 3. Stable code base is far better than Windows or Mac. Although every OS has its bugs, Linux users will tell you that Linux is by far the most stable and resilient operating system available. Most Linux users are also users of Windows or Mac OS, or both. With that experience, they can tell you that Linux does an excellent job at supporting a large, established platform of hardware and receives frequent and useful updates almost daily. To be sure, this can be particularly subjective and most users will defend their choice of system. This is not to say Linux isn't without its problems. Some third-party hardware such as video cards can be downright difficult to install and configure the driver. Once the driver is installed, however, as always, problems are at a minimum. Number four, ability to work with Linux, Unix, Mac, or Windows file systems. Unlike its competitors, Linux can easily read and write to HFS Plus or NTFS formatted drives. This is a major time saver when one is transferring files back and forth from a Linux system to another system. For example, Windows will not even see a Linux or Mac OS formatted drive and offer to format the drive with NTFS when it is plugged in. Mac OS at least can read a Windows formatted drive so it's possible to get the data from the drive. Number 5. Linux can be installed on any PC or Mac. Linux is system agnostic and can easily be installed on any hardware platform. Linux can also be installed on ARM-based systems such as the Raspberry Pi, making it the most universally accepted OS on a variety of hardware. But it doesn't stop there. Linux is very capable of installing on a system that already has an OS, even if the drive is completely formatted. For example, if your Windows system has an NTFS partition across the entire drive, the Linux installer in Fedora is able to shrink the partition and install. The user can then select the OS to boot from easily at startup. Number 6. Open Source Application Availability There are plenty of applications to choose from in Linux and every category of software is covered, from office apps to programming, graphics, internet, multimedia, and games, one can find quality open source apps. Although Linux doesn't boast as many apps as Windows or Mac OS, there are literally thousands of applications for a wide variety of needs. Number 7. Easy and Intuitive Updater Linux overshadows both Windows and Mac with its powerful and quick update application. 
Regardless of the distribution, Linux is capable of updating apps in real time while a user continues to work, without the need of a reboot. There are a few packages that require a reboot, such as the kernel. On those rare occasions that do require a reboot, the user gets to choose when. Incidentally, after the reboot, there are no additional steps and the system boots up immediately. Included with bug fixes and enhancements for the OS and apps are security updates. Although the update process can be automated, the choice of when and how is fully within the user's control. Users are able to disable individual packages from being updated or entire repositories. Contrast this with the daily nag screen from Mac OS or the intrusive and arbitrary way that Windows applies updates with little or no input from the user. It's no surprise for Windows 10 to take 20 to 30 minutes to install updates, then take another 20 minutes to finish updates after rebooting. Number 8. Genuinely fun to set up and work with. One can create their own custom environment, write their own programs, or enhance existing programs. The ability to tweak and change just about everything in Linux is reminiscent of the 80s when PC enthusiasts would meet and trade ideas about computers or shareware programs. There never seemed to be a lack of exciting new changes or programs to talk and learn about. Many users enjoyed writing custom batch scripts for DOS and pushing their 8086 or 8088 computers as far as possible. Indeed, the roll-your-own system was most likely created back then. Today, this collaborative and enthusiastic environment is infectious in Linux and is very conducive to the do-it-yourself user. Number 9. A large support group. The enthusiasm of Linux users is apparent. One has only to do a search on the internet and you will quickly find a myriad of help sites and forums with users ready to offer help and support for just about any Linux-based topic. YouTube is another great example of Linux support. There are thousands of videos with help on just about any Linux topic. Yes, there are Windows and Mac OS support videos as well, but some issues are limited by Microsoft and Apple. Many times Linux users will write and compile a code fix for the problem, while a Windows or Mac user will have to wait for the company to release an update, if they ever do. And number 10, the future is transparent. Although Microsoft and Apple are not likely to disappear anytime soon, they do have complete control over their products. They can choose how long a product will be supported and even how long it'll be available. In the open source community, there's a lot of discussion about the difference in software development philosophies known as the cathedral and the bazaar. Eric S. Raymond originally wrote about this concept in an essay and later in a book published in 1999. On one hand, a company like Microsoft uses the cathedral philosophy, meaning all code is closed and produced in-house. If the company chooses to no longer support or release a product, it can do so on a whim. Users are never aware of the actual source code, nor can they gain access to it or edit it. The bizarre philosophy is more of a bottom-up development style, meaning that software code is developed by anyone over the internet and is open and transparent for all to see or change. Raymond considers this development style to have first been created by Linus Torvalds when he began the Linux project. There are many advantages to the bizarre, most importantly that no one person or organization controls access to the source code 
and anyone is free to participate in its development. Linux and the packages that make up a distribution like Fedora, Debian, or Arch are all open source and developed by anyone who has an interest. Although distributions may come and go, the core of Linux and its supporting applications will always be available and developed regardless of the downfall or change of any one company. Many companies such as Google, IBM, Microsoft, and others actively participate in the development of Linux and its well-established code base. This ensures that Linux will be around for a very long time and as we have seen, will only continue to get better and better. Mac OS a fetish object for the bourgeois, Mac OS vs Unix. From Unix for Mac, your visual blueprint to maximizing the foundation of Mac OS X by Sandra Henry Stalker and Ken Bartlett, 2003. Unix is a trademark of American telephone and telegraph company, Atenti Corporation. Mac OS is a trademark of Apple Computer and Corporation. You can get full use out of your Mac OS X computer by learning the ins and outs of the Unix operating system. Even though you may not know it, you use Unix every time you turn on your Mac OS X computer, because at the core, Mac OS X is Unix. The original version of Unix was created in the 1960s in the Bell Labs of Atenti, by researchers who devised a multi-user operating system for large mainframe computers. BSD Unix system from Atenti, the Unix system spread to research universities that quickly adopted it. The University of California, Berkeley, was one of the earliest adopters and developers of Unix. The staff and students at Berkeley added many more features to this ever-evolving operating system. The updated Berkeley version of Unix was known as Berkeley Software Distribution, BSD, and it forms a major branch of the operating system family tree. The BSD family tree must be an apple tree, because the most recent fruit is Mac OS X, which is based on the BSD Unix system from Berkeley. The most famous open-source software is the free operating system known as Linux. A young, Finnish software developer named Linus Torvalds created Linux as a version of Unix that could run on Intel-style PCS, as well as other hardware. In addition to Linux, there are several free versions of BSD Unix, known as FreeBSD, OpenBSD, and NetBSD. Mac OS X is a cousin to these FreeBSD operating systems, but is not itself a free operating system. The largest collection of open-source applications comes from the NU project, developed by the Free Software Foundation. NU is an acronym for NU's not Unix, and yes, that is self-referential. Many of the Unix applications that you run are based on NU code. Up to and including Mac OS 9, the Apple operating system was not based on Unix. There was no Unix code at the core of Mac OS 9 or earlier systems, instead, they used an operating system that was developed with an Apple computer. Darwin when it was time to create the next version of Mac OS, Apple chose to base it on a BSD Unix foundation, modified for the specific needs of Apple. This version of BSD Unix was called Darwin. Darwin consists primarily of the Unix kernel, which is the program that runs and manages all the processes and shells of the operating system, along with associated programs and files that make the kernel run. Not all the Mac OS X operating system is open source. For example, the programs used to create the Mac OS X desktop and Windows, known collectively as Aqua, are not available for free and are only distributed as compiled applications. Aqua each time you run Mac OS X on your computer, you are using Aqua. Aqua is the graphical user interface system that gives your Macintosh the distinctive look and feel of Mac OS X.
About hidden files in macOS, you can use the A option with the ls command to list hidden files. Computers do not always display all files to the user. They do not do this to deceive you, but rather to help reduce the visual clutter in file listings. Hidden files are usually special files, set apart from the files that Unix users create and update. They may be configuration files or files that establish your shell environment. However, there are times that you may need to see a listing of all of your files, both hidden and normal, while working with Unix. Unix hides files by giving them a file name starting with a period. Most commands, including the ls command, ignore these files. You cannot see them in a normal file listing. They also do not appear in the Mac OS X finder. You can copy a file and its resource fork using the ditto command. Mac OS X uses resource forks to store additional information about the file. A resource fork is a hidden file that accompanies another document. When you use Aqua applications, resource forks are created automatically but are kept invisible to both the Mac OS X finder and the Unix shell. That's what we call freedom. From Mac for Linux Geeks includes Index by Tony Steidler Dennison. The first was the introduction of Mac OS X. It was the first version of the Macintosh operating system to fully utilize BSD at its core. The creation of Mac OS X really starts with the creation of Unix. That story is well known especially among Linux geeks, a group that owes a great debt of gratitude to the work of Dennis Ritchie, Ken Thompson, and a team of Bell Labs engineers. In the summer and early fall of 1969, these engineers cobbled together a rough operating system based on the multiplexed information in computing service MU. LTICS, Operating System. Multics was a project taken on jointly in 1966 by Bell, General Electric, and Massachusetts Institute of Technology MIT but dropped in 1969. Like so many technical projects, work on the Unix system began with an informal discussion. Ritchie, Thompson, and fellow Bell Labs engineer Rudd Kanaday met to talk about the project in the summer of 1969. The notes from that brainstorming session were phoned to the Bell Labs dictation system, transcribed, and sent to the engineers. These informal notes would become the working concept of operations for the initial version of Unix. Over four months following that meeting, work on the Unix system rolled forward. A rough file system was created on the PDP-7, a system that, at its creation, was state-of-the-art. The engineers, primarily Thompson, created the operating system, shell, assembler, and editor in just four weeks. They also developed a set of tools that would be accessible to users on the system, including tools to copy, print, and delete files. This core tool set was created with the General Electric Comprehensive Operating System Geckos, a system still in limited use on servers and mainframes today. The tools were then transferred to the PDP-7 using paper tape. With the assembler, the final piece of the original system, successfully transferred to the PDP-7, the fledgling Unix system was no longer reliant on Geckos. Unix was completely self-contained with the full capabilities to develop and build new tools for the system included as part of the system itself. The revolution that is Unix. Macros and Pipes Two more milestones in the development of Unix were accomplished in the years between 1970 and 1975. The first was, in essence, another modernization of an older computing idea, the concept of macros. Like data structures at the code level, 
Macros contain a set of actions and operations that could be executed by users and developers. The overriding idea was to group these sets of tasks together in a series of operations initiated by a single keystroke. Macros did not exist in the early iterations of the C language. Due to the growing complexity and power of that language, macros for it were more difficult to create, because that power and complexity demanded a similar level of power in macro-like operations. Ritchie and Kernighan approached this problem head-on, creating a concept that would truly distinguish the Unix operating system from others of its day and from most that followed. Rather than creating new code for macros, Ritchie and Kernighan envisioned a concept that would allow the output of one existing command or tool to be passed as input to another. This concept efficiently leveraged the previous work of creating the individual system tools, eliminating duplicate effort. More important, it also created a seemingly infinite number of tool combinations. Any tool could perform its discrete operations, and then seamlessly pass the result of those operations as input to any other tool for further processing and output, perhaps to yet another tool, if necessary. In effect, the concept created system, glue, capable of tying many tools to many others as required. Ritchie and Kernighan called this glue pipes. In practice, pipes were revolutionary. Pipes gave users power and flexibility that simply could not be achieved with mere macros. They also had an interesting side effect on subsequent Unix development. They narrowed the scope of new tools to single tasks. What would become the hallmark philosophy of Unix systems was born in that reduced scope. Do one thing, and do it well. The implementation of pipes allowed developers to write programs that performed a single task well, and then to tie those applications, as necessary, to others created under the same philosophy. At the highest level, the use of pipes encouraged developers to create system and user tools that worked well together. In 1970, Wozniak became friendly with a summer intern at Wozniak's employer, Silicon Valley stalwart Hewlett-Packard. The friend made an increasingly compelling case that a computer could be built and sold on a single circuit board. That such a computer could, in fact, be the basis of a company created specifically to sell computers to individuals, rather than to businesses. Though initially skeptical, Wozniak was eventually convinced that his friend, Stephen Jobs, might be onto something. After ending a brief college career of his own at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, Jobs returned to Palo Alto in 1974, taking a job as a technician at Atari. Jobs and Wozniak became regular attendees and contributors at the homebrew meetings. Jobs focused his attention on marketing, sales, and fundraising. Unlike the histories of Unix and BSD, which were primarily technical achievements, the story of Apple Computer is equal parts technical wizardry and marketing savvy. It's almost impossible to tell the story of one without telling the story of the other. In 1983, Apple introduced the Lisa and another new operating system. Lisa Office System, OS, implemented a set of process management system calls that bore some resemblance to Unix. Additionally, the Lisa OS file system bore a striking resemblance to Unix, albeit with a few additional Apple pieces. But the most striking feature of the Lisa was a full graphical user interface, GI, as inspired by efforts at Xerox's Park Laboratory. The convergence, Mac OS X financially buoyed by his time at Apple, Jobs purchased Pixar, a visual effects studio, for $10 million in 1986, and then founded a new company, Next, and Corporation. Next would produce the Next Step operating system, a Unix-like system, and the hardware on which it would run.
next step would eventually serve as one basis of the rebirth of Apple and the Macintosh. However, the convergence of the Macintosh and Unix actually began in the early 1990s, with a version of at and unix known as Apple Unix. Next step next step was a direct descendant of 4.3 BSD. Its distinction from BSD rested in its use of the Mac microkernel, originally designed as a drop-in Unix kernel replacement. Back at Apple following Jobs's departure from Apple, the company went through a period in which it seemed, at once, overambitious and underachieving. Still true to this day, in 1997, Apple acquired Next for a staggering $429 million. The deal also included 1.5 million shares of Apple stock, all of which were awarded to Steve Jobs. Apple had returned to its roots, bringing back its founder to head the company. In 2001, Jobs would remove the interim from his CEO title. The company had also found the operating system that would take it into the next century in Next Step. Over the next four years, Next Step would be ported to the PowerPC platform while maintaining synchronous Intel builds. Jobs introduced Mac OS X, with its internal BSD and Mac kernel, at the January 2000 Macworld conference in San Francisco, California. Apple had created a 21st century operating system by returning to technologies born in the 1970s. Fools! Following the acquisition of Next and the return of Steve Jobs to the company, Next Step began a deliberate metamorphosis to Darwin, the system that would become the core of Mac OS X. While retaining its BSD underpinnings, object-oriented libraries, strong graphics orientation, and development tools, the Darwin kernel was hybridized. The XNU kernel took shape with elements of Mac, FreeBSD, and code created in-house by the Apple team. History Unix and its various derivatives had been well-known and highly regarded since the late 1970s. It was the operating system of choice for business, academia, and, since the early 1980s, government research programs. The large, active code base made it possible to customize a full operating system for almost any need. BSD also had a large and dedicated user base. Bugs in the system were fixed quickly. The code was under constant review and revision by the community. That community, in fact, made sure that each new tool added to BSD underwent thorough testing under the Unix philosophy that it should work well with other tools. That established process and history would potentially reduce the development time for the Apple team. Open source base The open source basis of Mac OS X was actually misrepresented in Steve Jobs's hyperbolic announcement of the operating system at the 2000 Macworld conference in San Francisco. Two pieces of that announcement in particular made more of those origins than was supported by reality. Calling Mac OS X, very Linux-like, Jobs noted that it uses FreeBSD Unix, which is the same as Linux. While there are similarities, there are also many differences between the two operating systems. Jobs also noted that Mac OS X was completely open source. Again that's not exactly true. While the Darwin code is, in fact, open source, many elements of Mac OS X are not. But Steve Jobs is a marketing people, he is not there, to tell you the truth, but to sell you, a dream. While the free BSD basis of Mac OS X moved the Macintosh into the modern age, it is not the completely free and open source operating system painted by Jobs's Macworld announcement. The decision to continue using open source tools in Mac OS X created, to paraphrase Tovels, enough eyeballs to keep the bugs shallow. It allowed Apple to call upon a large pool of user-created tools. Meaning free.
Extensibility based on BSD, NextStep was highly extensible. The basis of NextStep was BSD's native C. The power of C had already been proven and could be extended easily as the operating system grew to meet new demands. The full set of Unix user space tools available in FreeBSD is available in macOS X natively. As already noted, the core of macOS X is based on FreeBSD and is a true Unix. BSD, Linux, and macOS X are clearly branches straight from a single taproot, the Unix operating system. Let's go back one more time to the origins of macOS X. It began its life as NextStep, which was a direct descendant of OpenBSD, Unix through and through. The core implementation of BSD in macOS X is Darwin. macOS X is compatible with the single Unix specification version 3, is certified Unix 03 compliant, and is fully POS6 compliant. The systems share a common ancestor, after all, in Unix. BSD is Unix. macOS X is based on BSD, although it also contains quite a bit of proprietary code. You'll recall that BSD is a direct fork of Unix, created by students at UCB. That fork took shape beginning in the late 1970s, with BSD development proceeding in a path parallel to that of Unix. As BSD development continued through version 4.2, Unix development moved into System 5, Sys 5. We continue the bullshit of Mac OS X, from beginning Unix by Paul Love, Joe Merlino, et al. 2003. Unix is a case-sensitive operating system. This means that the case, capitalization, of file and directory names matters. In DOS or Microsoft Windows systems, you can type a file name with no regard to the capitalization. In Unix, you must know the case of the file or directory name because you could have three different files named real underscore file, real underscore file with a capital R, or real underscore file in capital letters. Mac OS X is a case-insensitive. This means that on Mac OS X there is no distinction between naming a file real underscore file, real underscore file with a capital R, or real underscore file in capital letters. From Mac OS support essentials 1012 Apple Pro training series, supporting and troubleshooting Mac OS Sierra by Kevin M. White and Gordon Davison, about Unix commands Mac systems have long been both PO6 and Unix O3 compliant. Thus, Mac OS is compatible with most Unix software. Mac OS is a limited Unix, as we will see later. Hidden items The root level of the Mac system volume contains many resources that Unix processors require and Unix administrators expect. Apple made the wise choice of configuring the Finder to hide these items from the average user. On a daily basis, the average user, and even most administrator users, does not need to access any of these items from the graphical interface. Realistically, the only people who even care about these normally hidden resources are going to be using the command line interface via terminal to do their work anyway. Realistically really and yet in my daily use, even not using the terminal, I create or delete hidden files through the graphical interface. Mac OS was created for the little bourgeois, the proof, the Mac online store there to repair the OS. Unthinkable for a purist who has a Unix to have control over his system. It's a typical reflex of a small bourgeois fetishist, who is more interested in the fetish, than in the use. But the idiot, has a Mac OS. Symbolic links, by default, you cannot create symbolic links from the finder, but the finder can follow symbolic links to the original item. Symbolic link shortcuts are part of the traditional Unix file system. They are pointers to the file system path of the original item. 
Thus, in many cases, if you move the original item, the symbolic link is broken. In macOS, you can create symbolic links only in terminal. Duh. This confirms my theory that the macOS user is a consumer, not a user. A user free to choose. Hard links hard link shortcuts are also part of the traditional Unix file system. They are actual additional references to the original item. You can create hard links only in terminal. The finder cannot create hard links, but it can follow them. Gosh, this macOS system is a scam. You get a system you pay for and plus a relatively expensive hardware, but you are restricted in it. It makes no sense, and has nothing to do with the Unix philosophy, which was created to free the user. The macOS system layout is designed to strike a balance between ease of use and advanced functionality. For the basic user, looking at the root, beginning, of the file system from the finder reveals only four default folders, applications, library, users, and system. The contents of these four folders represent all that most users, and many administrators, ever need to access. Yet when advanced users look at the system root from terminal, they see many more items that the finder would normally hide. Thus, the complexity and flexibility of a Unix operating system remains accessible to those users who require it. What a lousy sales pitch. I've been on Linux for years, and I have access to more possibilities than a macOS for free. What follows is worse, and shows this little dictator mentality. Historically, Unix systems like macOS have allowed users and processes with root or system administrator access to bypass system permissions. Thus, as covered in Lesson 11, Manage permissions and sharing, any user or process with root access could essentially modify any item on the system volume. Further, processes running as root are normally allowed to modify the memory stores of any running process. As a default on macOS, any administrator can install software that can potentially request root access. Because many users don't think twice before authenticating an installer or update, an administrator user could easily install malware that could take advantage of root access. This is why, from a security perspective, root access is a significant risk factor. Basically, the user is a jerk. System initialization, launch D once the kernel is up and running, the Mac is ready to start running processes at the behest of the system and, eventually, human users. Again, the first non-kernel process started as launch D located at sbin, launch D, which runs as root and is given the process identification number of 1. In Unix terms, launch D is the first parent process that spawns other child processes, and those processes go on to spawn other child processes. Apple strongly encourages all developers to adopt the launch D system for all automatically started processes, but the launch D process also supports legacy startup routines. This includes support for running the traditional Unix, etc, rc, local script during system initialization, if present, though this script is not included on macOS by default. What freedom? Why do? S the finder hide certain folders at the root of the system volume? Answer. The finder hides traditional Unix resources from average users because they don't need access to those items. Wonderful. The whole history of macOS goes in the opposite direction of technology and user liberation, Unix. Good luck Apple. And in the next few minutes, we're going to show you some of the properties of the Unix operating system that make it a good programming environment for many purposes. In Bell Labs, as in many industries, almost everyone has some kind of involvement with software. Either they are actually producing software, and that is their job, 
or they are impacted by software or they use software. In fact, at Bell Labs, about 50% of the people are actually producing software and everyone else has some kind of involvement with it. In fact, that's one of our worst problems today. There is a crying need for useful software to do effective jobs. We just do not have enough people to write all of that software. Keeping large amounts of software working and keeping it working in the face of change is a big job. It takes a lot of skilled people to do this. Now, software is different from hardware. When you build hardware and send it out, uh, you may have to fix it because it breaks, but you don't demand, for example, that your radio suddenly turn into a television. And you don't demand that a piece of hardware suddenly do a completely different function. But people do that of software all of the time. There's a continual demand for changes, enhancements, new features that people find necessary once they get used to a system. In other words, we put the system out there, people get used to it, their jobs change, they come back with more demands for different sorts of, of features in the system. The result is there's no way to get perfect requirements in the first place. And that means that we have to build the software to be very change tolerant because we do not want to throw the software away the year after we wrote it. There are a couple ways to do that. One is to make the software fairly clear and easy to read and understand and change, and you do that with some of the current popular structured programming techniques. Another way is to write many, many small modules of code. That way, when you have a change, perhaps you only throw out a few small modules or make changes in a few modules rather than in thousands and thousands of lines of code. What we should be doing in the computing business is trying to raise the level at which we work so that a programmer can write a few lines of code that turn into many, many instructions in the machine. That way, when changes need to be made, one just changes a few lines of code rather than thousands and thousands of them. Someone once said that software stands between the user and the machine, and to me this conveys this picture of a great wall of software up there that you have to overcome to get anything done. There's certainly a grain of truth in the remark anyway. Um, if you stop to look, many, many operating systems seem to spend a substantial fraction of their time and effort not in helping you, but in impeding you, in, in making your job difficult, sort of providing obstacles to be overcome. When Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie started building the Unix system in 1969, they found a structure which simplified many aspects of the interactions between computers and people. Thompson and Ritchie were aiming to keep their system simple, and they found a collection of primitives that enabled them to do a great deal with a very few primitives. A Unix system is made up sort of of three layers, if you like. The central layer, the kernel, is the thing that controls the resources of the machine. Then wrapped around that, at least in conceptually, is something called the shell, which is the interface between most users and the kernel part. It sits there and waits for you to type commands at it, and then it interprets them. And then around that, sort of an, yet another layer, are useful programs, things like editors and compilers for programming languages and document formatting programs and programs that you write yourself. And what you can do is to think of these Unix system programs, basically, as in some sense the building blocks with which you can create things. And the thing that distinguishes Unix system from many other systems is the degree to which those building blocks can be glued together in a variety of different ways, not just obvious ways, but in many cases very unobvious ways, 
to get different jobs done. Uh, the system is very flexible in that respect. I, I think the notion of pipelining is the fundamental contribution. If the system is, you can take a bunch of programs, two or more programs, and stick them together end to end so that the data simply flows from the one on the left to the one on the right. And the system itself looks after all of the connections, all of the synchronization, making sure that the data goes from the one into the other. The programs themselves don't know anything about the connection. As far as they're concerned, they're just talking to the terminal. So you notice that I did that whole job without writing any programs at all. The whole thing is cobbled together out of programs that already existed. And all I did was to use the fact that the system provides this mechanism of the pipeline so that I can take programs and stick them together one after another to get my job done. And I think this is one of the reasons why the system's so productive, that there's a large collection of things that people have already built that we use. And as we build our new things, then they become part of the repertoire of things that people subsequently can build on. Unix Systems has many features which make it easier for the programmer to write programs. These include formatless files, the hierarchical directory structure, the ability to pipeline the output of one command as the input of another, device-independent I.O. All of these things make programming considerably easier than on most other systems. The heart of the system is really the file system, the, the ability to store information for extended periods of time. And the reason, one of the reasons the system works as well as it does is that the file system is well designed. And many systems, you have to say an awful lot about a file before you can do anything with it. You have to say where it is and how big it is and what kind of information it's going to, that's going to be in it. All kinds of things that are basically utterly and completely irrelevant. Here, you don't have to do any of that. A file is as big as it is. It doesn't matter where it is as long as you know what it's called. And so you basically don't have to think of any of those complexities that you have in other systems. When you want information in a file, you put it there. When you want it back, you get it out again. And you don't have to think about size or number of records or number of fields or anything like that unless it's really germane to your program. For most purposes, it's utterly irrelevant. A file is simply a sequence of bytes. Its main attribute is its size. By contrast, in more conventional systems, a uh, file has dozen or so attributes. To specify or create a file, it takes endless amounts of chit-chat. If you want a Unix system file, you simply ask for a file, and you can use it interchangeably wherever you want a file. The Unix system consists of a hierarchy of directories, which a directory is simply a file that contains the names of either other directories or files. And this whole thing goes on recursively. When you log into a Unix system, you normally are sitting in a place that's called your home directory, your user's directory. And I can say PWD, which means print the name of my working directory, and it'll tell me where I am. It says at the moment that I'm in user PWK. And that's where I start when I log in. Now, I can go up a level in that. I can change to parent level. And now, if I print my working directory, I'm in slash user. And I can go up one more level to the root of the whole file system. Let me go back down to BWK, and I can list the, direct, the files that I have in that directory. And I find there, among other things, a directory called TV. And I can list the files that are there, and I'll find, among other things, the sentence that we printed in the spelling mistake finding program. Let me look at that, and sure enough, there it is. So as you can see, the file system hierarchy 
makes it possible for users to organize information into its natural grouping and to go up or down and find things quickly and easily. Another nice feature of the Unix programming environment is the concept of input-output redirection. Normally, when you type a command, the output from it goes to your terminal and the input comes from your keyboard. However, the shell can be told by a simple notation that when you run a program, you wish the output to be directed into a file or that the input be taken from a file. For example, to print the output of my spelling program on the line printer instead of putting it on my terminal, all I have to do is say my spell sentence greater than device line printer rather than my spell sentence. And the output goes into a file, what looks like a file, except that it's actually a file that causes the line printer to spring into action and print my three or four spelling mistakes on the line printer. On many systems, redirection of input and output is literally impossible because the programs have wired into them the notion that they have to read or write the user's terminal, and there's simply no way to convince them otherwise. They have to do that. Here, that is not the case. Here, any program can have its input or output redirected because the input and output redirection is handled not by the individual program, but by the shell. And so that way it applies to all programs without any exception at all. And in fact, this goes a little further than you might expect because not only are parts of the disk files as they are in other systems, but in addition, the I.O. devices, the peripheral devices connected to the computer are also files in the file system. For example, the line printer and the tape drive and even the thing that dials telephone numbers are all devices in the file system. And the same program that will copy information from one disk file to another disk file will also copy information from a disk file to the line printer or from the magnetic tape drive to the printer. The same program, exactly. Dennis Ritchie created the C language. C is a very nice high-level language with many of the modern programming constructs in it. The thing that's very important about it is that it lets you avoid the details of the machine when you want to, but when you need to, and sometimes when you're writing an operating system, you really do need to, you can get at the details of the machine and control everything. But you're not forced to do that, and that's important because that means you can write operating systems in this language and still have something that can be portable to other machines. The Unix system has been moved to many, many different kinds of computers. Again, that means that people can ignore the details of what a machine is underneath and get on with their job. Now, so at that level, C is by far the favored language. At the next level, the shell programming language is very popular. In fact, on some machines, people find that the shell meets all of their programming needs. They are writing lots of procedures to help them manage their work. They don't even have to go to a language at the level of, of C. As it happens, though, because the system is such a pleasant programming environment, programmers all over the world have imported or added their own languages. So, for instance, you can find Fortran, Algol, Lisp, BASIC, in fact, almost any language you can think of exists on some Unix system somewhere. What's important about the Unix system is not so much what Ritchie and Thompson put into it as what they were able to leave out of it. Rather than produce a large number of primitives, each one complex, they were able to choose a small number of simple primitives which could be fitted naturally together to accomplish complex tasks. 
This structure of the operating system makes it natural and easy for people who create applications to produce applications in that same style. For example, as the scale of integration of silicon circuits gets ever larger, we find it necessary to have more and more sophisticated design aids to help people create large-scale integrated circuits. Our existing design aids are advanced and effective, but advances in VLSI create a need for even better tools. Rather than produce those tools in the form of one humongous program designed to do everything, the people here have been producing small packages, each designed to do some individual function that's helpful in the design of integrated circuits. Then these individual packages can be combined using shell procedures to design a part of a circuit or a circuit, and the parts of a circuit can be combined to make a whole circuit. After these equations have been processed, it's then necessary to worry about the geometric layout of the circuit. This is done in the next two portions of LGEN. The first program worries about the ordering of these columns. Uh, it uses a technique called graph partitioning to attempt to iteratively come up with a good solution to what is, in fact, an extremely difficult problem in theory. After the columns have been ordered, then the tracks where the signals run are laid out as well by another program. And finally, in some sense, we now have the circuit designed, and it's simply a question of realizing it with the particular rules for our fabrication process. Uh, and that is done by a fourth program. So once again, we have an example of taking a very complex problem, dividing it into pieces, representing each piece with a separate program and then using the facilities of the Unix system to glue the pieces together into a coherent whole again.